Hello, and welcome to Scots Whiskey Explorers, a podcast where we discuss everything there is to discuss about whiskey. I'm Stuart, and I'll be joined by Peter on each episode, where we will ask the questions and seek out the answers that are prompted by our love of whiskey. If you want to know more about how we came to be making this podcast, please have a listen to the Season 1 trailer. In Season 1, we will be focusing on the fundamentals of single malt Scotch whisky production. Everything from barley to fermentation to maturation will be examined and explored in exhaustive detail. If you'd like to know more about Scots Whisky Explorers or if you'd like to get in touch to leave comments or suggestions, please go to www.scotswhiskeyexplorers.com. You can also find us on Twitter at WhiskeyScots. Thank you for listening to Scots Whisky Explorers. We hope you enjoy it. Now, please sit back, relax, pour yourself a dram and enjoy our conversation about milling and mashing. Evening, Peter. How you doing? I'm very well, Stuart, and yourself? I'm good. I'm good. Looking forward to diving deep into uh, this episode that we've got uh, lined up. Um, But before we get there, um, just a couple of bits of housekeeping. I was going to mention that our website's now live, so that's um, been a well, little. Work. <laughs> well, we want to point out um, it's been a little bit of a steep learning curve, but um, WordPress has been duly conquered, and the website's live. So um, if you haven't seen it already, go and check it out. Have a wee look at um, Scott's www.scottswhiskeyexplorers.com currently the trailer is on is live on the site the trailer episode I'm, I'm just waiting to hear back from apple to get itunes all officially confirmed and then we can start putting up all the episodes so far and if you do listen to the if you do listen to the um the trailer episode you'll hear that when we're explaining how the the whole podcast thinking about i say something along the lines of i couldn't find any scottish based kind of whiskey podcasts out there and then lo and behold in between recording that trailer episode which was when did we record that it must have been a couple of months ago now yeah so in between record i think it was just at the start yeah probably probably april yeah um so just after just after recorded peter and i recorded the uh, trailer episode lo and behold a ton of other Scottish whiskey podcasts appeared, so my apologies to them if they're if they were listening to the to the trailer and uh, and thinking what's he talking about? We're we're doing it as well. So a uh, big shout out to the guys who are involved in the Quake the Quake podcast. Go and check them out if you've not heard it already. Um, some great stuff happening there. Um, the whiskey minister is. Uh, somebody I just stumbled upon recently. Uh, his podcast is called A Hin About Whiskey. And then there's the guys, I think they're, they're all from Glengoyne, or at least they're involved in some respect with Ian McLeod. Uh, Three Gordons, I think they're called, and they do a podcast called Unscripted. And then there's the, there's the Whiskey Talk from the Society, the Scottish Malt Whiskey Society podcast, which has some great content on it as well. So big shout out to all of them. And then can't forget One Nation Under Whiskey podcast, the guys from Single Cask Nation, because Jason's uh, from just down the road in air. So 
shout out to them as well. Uh, so yeah, check out check out those guys because there's some great content. Um, and uh, I know I've learned something from all of them. So it's great to hear so many Scottish podcasters representing and talking about Scotch whiskey. Anyway, that was that's the kind of announcements that I was wanting to make. Um, other than just to reiterate that if you've heard the first couple of episodes or you you've listened to so far, you'll you'll know you'll know that we're we're not experts and we're not industry uh, employees or anything like that. So um, it's maybe worth reiterating that all the content that we, that Peter and I can muster for the podcast isn't an exhaustive or a complete summation of every topic. We just try to go deep um, and find out as much for ourselves as we can. Um, you know, there's but there's limits to our knowledge and experience and the, and, and the time as well. So um, another thing that's become apparent is as the episodes go by and I'm we're talking now, we're on episode three, so we're looking at different topics just now. But as I'm researching that, I'm finding out things about content that could have been included in episode one and episode two. So, um, I mean, there's a already i think there's a there's a call for a, an episode one reprise you know a, a barley reprise um for example i'm finding out just today i was reading about mccallan and their minstrel variety some interesting topic uh, interesting yeah, little, nice to me. yeah some interesting little bits of info there uh, so i think golden promise yeah and uh, the, the article i was reading was um it's a few years old now, but the guys from Ben Romich were were being more heavily involved with their uh, relationship with Golden Promise. So, um, you know, there's always stuff to learn. And um, given that, I, I'd happily read and listen to any info provided by uh, more experienced or knowledgeable people out there. So if you want to get in touch and leave comments on the website or, you know, um, Love to hear from you. Good stuff, Stuart. You covered a lot of ground there. So, um, milling and mashing. Yeah. It sounds awful simple, doesn't it? But then, of course, what we were hoping to find is that it's not as simple <laughs> as, as as it on as on the face of it would suggest. Yeah. Um. So if we if we just kind of backpedal a little bit and just have two seconds thinking about where we've been so far. So we started off growing barley in the field and then we harvested that and in episode two we looked at the the malting and all the kind of procedures that that entails. Again, a little bit more complex than you would maybe first think. So now we're we're taking that malted barley and we're we're arriving at the distillery for a lot of a lot of places. This is the first time yes. the grain will be inside the distillery. I think that's a, a good point there, Stuart, actually. Um that e- even in these um you know, days of concentrating production and economies of scale, pretty much every distillery, certainly in Britain, um has has its own mashing or mashing process that goes on. 
Um, there was, I, I had looked around for some small exceptions to that, and I was right that um, in thinking that uh, Penderen certainly in the early days didn't have um, a mash tun. They got their uh, their warts supplied to them by the local brewery, which I think was Brains. All right. Um, but they did have they did get a mash tun installed. I think. Oh, 2014, so uh, certainly late. No, that's, that's well into their career as a distillery. I think they opened in 2000, so it's certainly wow. a, a good bit on. And well, Pendera might get a message later on as well when it comes to talking about stills because they, they started off with their stills being able to do both processes as well, you know, being able to do the wash and the spirit. So, um, but just a wee, well, I, th I think it's right that to point out that, that we I can't come across any distillery that doesn't do this or doesn't have that process done close to close to hand. Like Canindy, I think maybe at stretch gets its um, mashing done either in Balvenie, or I think it's Balvenie, isn't it? Um, but it's still pretty much this is once we've got to this point, we're inside the distillery yeah, door. Yeah, yeah. So before we maybe before we. Before we look at the milling, we should maybe have a wee think and have get it clear in our heads. What what's the purpose of the of mashing? What what are we what are we doing with the with the grain? Well, so, certainly in any time when I've when I've visited, and I have to confess to not having found this the most glamorous part of the distillery. You're waiting for the the big money shots of the stills, you know. But what's going on here? We'll, we'll scoot past the the milling machine and then mm. we'll go and then we'll look at hot water getting added to some some malted barley and that looks a bit like porridge but we'll just we'll just move on can we get to the, the yeah. sexy bits yeah when you look and, around when you're when you're there in the distillery and you look around you can see like a lot of bored faces <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay yeah. <laughs> so but of course what i'm hoping we'll be able to share is it's not although on the face of it this isn't this the sexiest part of the process. It's there's still a lot of nooks and corners in the process, Oof. and a lot of influence that this, the, the, the things that go on in this process have both in and of themselves. Mm. And then, as we as we pointed out from the outset, there's a kind of a accumulation process goes on that a change in the process now may have an influence further down the line, and that eventually. Is, is expressed in the final spirit so everything becomes relevant to what the final spirit will, will taste like um, and milling and mashing no no less important in that process yeah. and I, I quite like in how in thinking this through the way and the way that we've done you begin to see that there isn't necessarily a, necessarily a hierarchy of parts in the process but each has uh -huh. a, a, a degree of importance in in, in its own right. I've, yeah. I've quite enjoyed well, seeing that. That's that's quite interesting. You say that because I was I was listening to somebody talking earlier this week, and they were dealing with the processes in terms of importance, very much like a, like a hierarchy. Very much, if you took the very end stage of production, so the maturation. That's more mm. important, and they 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 were positing and asserting that 
the maturation was more important and had more effect on on the final product than the distillation did and the distillation had more more effect and had more importance to the resultant outcome than the fermentations did and the fermentations were more important than the mashing and the mashing was more important than the malting etc etc and and i found myself having to really disagree with that yeah. just out because of the the, the 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 research that we've been doing and this was somebody who was involved in the industry as well and um, so it's quite quite interesting how somebody who's been involved in industry can see it in such a different manner yeah so um no who's to say who's right and who's wrong um that's i think one of the great things about it there's just lots of lots of different viewpoints and yeah and along the process of of doing this i found um wasn't quite a training manual, but it, it was an outline of what you would be expected to do if you wanted to become a maltster. Mm-hmm. And it was essentially somewhere in the region of 18 to 20 months training, looking at barley. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's processing just to get to the point where you're making wort. That's, yeah. that's a lot of understanding to undertake so I, I think I would take issue too with the idea that um, one process isn't necessarily more important than the other I suppose it depends on the outcome if you're thinking about one particular issue within the taste I, 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 even then I think I don't know yeah. I'm not sure for me it sits as easily as that as seen it in a kind of pyramidic hierarchy I'm much more taken with the interaction of the different phases and how they move about and and even within themselves there are interactions within the phases that have an influence both in and of themselves about what if we're going to be talking about mashing here and making wort so that's going to have those processes are going to have interaction on that wort in and of itself and then subsequently how that wort is made what its constituent parts are are going to have an influence further down the line mm-hmm. in terms of how that unravels itself yeah. into this beautiful golden liquid that yeah. we how it interacts how it interacts and yeah so we're we're taking the grain we've got the grain from the monster and the monster has started the germination process and then stopped it through kilning so the the grain is dormant and the purpose of mashing it that we're looking at just now is to get that starch that's in the grain. We want to get it converted into sugars. Um, I've got maltose and dextrin written down here, but I think there's probably some other sugar. Yeah, I think it goes into more finite percentages than those, but I think maltose is the majority. Maltose and dextrin. And we're trying to get that into a solution. Yeah, well, those are soluble sugars, aren't they? So yeah. the work's already been done in terms of the, the malting and then stopped mm-hmm. in the, with the drying off process. And, and we talked, we touched on how pretty much for the majority of distilleries, that's all done off-site now. There mm-hmm. are just a, a handful, really, who do that themselves. Yeah. What I picked up, what I quite liked is that that, because you have a notion that that drying brings things to some sort of finite end, and that, that's not the case. The enzymes that were working on the barley in the malting process have been lying dormant, are waiting 
they're just yeah they're, to wake they're, up again and, and yeah. the process to do that is to is to douse them in some hot water yeah they've just been paused yeah yeah but before we can do that before we can douse them with water we have to we have to get the grain in a state that it is ready to give up its sugary substances. Yeah, it has to get dressed. So that's the, the when the grain is, is delivered to the distillery, it will be uh, the first process that generally will occur is it gets dressed. And by that, you're, you're referring to it goes through a machine that will destone the 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 batch of grain it will destone it um and take out any kind of impurities and then from there it gets whizzed along to the to the milling machine and it gets so, a wee light rumble there it does yeah and yeah. uh, did you did, was there anything in the, in the milling that stood out for you was anything well, of surprise not the dressing bit and I, again, it was just a reminder that, again, there are things to think about here because there are bits of that barley husk that you don't want anymore. You don't want any the acrospires or the roots are growing. You don't want them. They can be discarded. So that, that's that initial part of the dressing in the mill. Mm-hmm. But I, I quite liked that there were, to all intents and purposes, a kind of core milling machines. Is, was that what you were hinting at, that, you know, and any any time I've gone around the distillery, it's either a bobby mill or a porches mill for yeah. pretty much. And I'm not sure now if that's just because I know that, and that's so I've I've, I've projected a porches or a bobby mill onto onto every distillery. But um, that that's pretty much. I was struggled to to know any others other than you know by the little bits and pieces we've done and finding out mm-hmm. for for bringing this to here. And th- those are. There's something about very beautiful pieces of British engineering in those mills that are both companies are now no longer with us. It's all it's all maintenance now. I know that they they made such magnificent machines that they didn't think to put in built in obsolescence. Yes. They, they, they built in magnificence. <laughs> uh, so that and that that you get that sense when you visit that there is a little a, a lament to the magnificence of the. The engineers have put these machines together. Yeah, I can't think of any distillery that I've been in where there's been a new mill. No. Um, and everyone that's coming to mind is old Porteous and old old Bobby Mills. Yeah. What did Cohoman use? That's probably the newest distillery I've been around. Or, and I've been around Daft Mill, but I think Daft Mill just kind of, they kind of, Heath Robinson, a mill that they had, Right. So they they're they're an outlier in that they've not got a Porteous or a Bobby mill, but they've got um, and and their mills only got two rollers, whereas all these others have got mm. four. Now uh, we're now getting into beyond the technical language of I don't understand the significance of two and four rollers, other than well, maybe it's a two two part process when you've got four rollers. But um, I'm pretty sure Daft Mill kind of co opted a mill they already had, but uh, I, and. I'm trying to think what Colcomen I've got. Maybe, maybe I can look that oh, up. Have a look. Yeah. So, so what we're 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 looking at then is the is the the grains coming in, it's been destoned, and then it has to be presented properly to the mill. So there's a 
And it's worth saying that every distillery will do their milling and mashing differently because they've all got slightly different gear and they're all kind of individual plants that have different equipment. So we need to present the grains end on uh, because we want the, the husk to be not overly damaged. Uh, and if, if you have the, the, the husk pointing the wrong way, there's the, the danger that you'll be grinding the husk too much. So so we're looking for the grain to go through the, the, the mill and be ground up. And the resultant output is categorised into three different categories. So we've got the, the flour, which is the finer part. We've got the grits, which is the kind of middle part, which is a little bit coarser. And then we've got the husks. And this, the composition of these three uh, different components affects the wort separation. Um, at the end of the process, when the, the, the sugary liquid has been, has been drained away, we're looking, one of the things that are ha they're having to balance out the most is to get, the, to get the, the, the liquids separated from the solids efficiently. So the milling should really minimise the husk damage because it's the, the husks that are used as a filter medium at the, in the bottom of the tank. So if you have the incorrect composition of, of the mash, too much flour will lead to the bottom of the mash tun being clogged up. It's worthwhile pointing out that the bottom of the mash tun has a false floor with slots in it, so the water can, the, the warts can drain away. And if you get too much flour, I'm thinking of it kind of like you're doing the dishes and there's food left on the plates and that'll clog up your sink. You know, yeah. and that's that's the kind of thing that, that you want to try and avoid. Yeah, and I imagine, well, also you can see that, that those proportions that you're trying to get is that grist is, you want that to be, or most of the sellers are looking for about 70% of their, mm -hmm. their <clears throat> milling to be grist. And to and the flour to be the, the lowest proportion of that, so you're looking at down about ten yeah. for the remainder as husk. And I don't think there's much controversy around those percentages, because what you're trying to do then is you know the grist is where you're going to get your sugar extracted from, so you want that to be presenting itself to the water as mm -hmm. as ready as possible without, like you say, the interference or the the stickiness of the of the additional flour. I I saw there that um. Actually, Cohoman do do have a purchase mill. Oh right, they they managed to get it from a a, a brewery apparently, uh, and so actually the oldest piece of equipment that predates the distillery by <laughs> seventy or eighty years is is the purchase mill. There you go. And uh, I I also went through and had a look at. I wondered if there was like a an antagonism between the two makers if there was one was in more favor greater favor than the others now we've seen generally purchase did put in more mills i've seen that there, you know when you look at who's got what uh -huh. that the majority are still uh, still have purchase mills and that's you know it's noticeably uh springbank glen monji glen murray kagan moore del ewan ben rennes and and Balmenach, they, you know, they, they, these are all well-known stories uh -huh. that you would recognise. But it seemed that there was a, a majority had uh, had had purchase, and and uh, but uh, Bobby Mills um, was Ardbeg uh, and Bruchladi and Ben Romach 
But again, it tends to be, I think it, my sense was there was about two to one. Okay. If it, that I was picking up, but I mean, you, you know, somebody mm-hmm. might want to let me. But I, I was trying to see, was was there any controversy in the, in this, you know? Uh, and I, I, I struggled to find some, I have to confess, because Balvenie and Glenn <laughs> I've both got Porteous Mills. It's like, oh, you know, surely there's something in this. Could be, you know, would there be a mill off of some description? Yeah. <laughs> but the, the, best I, the best I could do was uh, the two distilleries next door to each other, both run by Diageo and Speyside, are Glenn Lossie and Manach Moa. And Glenn Lossie's got a Bobbyville. Oh. And guess what Manach Moa's got? It's a Porteous Mill. Yay! <laughs> so that, that was as controversial. <laughs> <laughs> as I could get it. Well, and, well, and we'll, we'll all come on to this, that uh, Glenn Lossie's got a stainless steel mastron and a slightly unusual... Right, it's, a, it's also it's mastron slightly an outlier. Right. Uh, but uh, And Manoff Moore's got a cast iron full loiter mastron, which with a proper copper dome. So, I mean, we'll, we'll come back to come back to that in a, in a, wee, a wee bit, I'm sure, about the... Uh-huh. About the... About the wonders of... Loiter and semi-loiter uh, masterns. So that that was as controversial as I could as I could get in terms of seeking out the wonders. But having said that, and there's I think there's more. Th- we need to keep an, a, an eye out or an ear out for Tianenich mm-hmm. because they don't have a mashton anymore. Yep, that's because their masterns at Glen Lossy. Glen Lossy got their got their mashton. Okay, I didn't know that. Oh, no, sorry. I was talking Mastons here. Um, um, that's a blind alley. It's it's mills. Tiana Nick doesn't have a mill anymore in the traditional Porteous Bobby mill. It's that mill is was bought second hand by Glen Lossy. Okay. So um, that that'll be when they installed the mash filter then, because you, you, yeah. you need a different type of mill. Any if you've got a mash filter, but we can come on to that because it's yeah. It's, uh, it's it's hot and up, Stuart. <laughs> so it's maybe worthwhile, right? So we're 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 halfway through the milling process, and the grains are being ground. You mentioned earlier on, um, you could have a roller mill, which is looking to produce a kind of a, a gentle separation of the gr- of the grist, with the husk mostly undamaged, and uh, that will then lead to. Uh, that'll produce a good filter bed in the tun for the separation of the the watts from the remaining mash. Um, we've got four row or six row mills. Uh, six rows is just giving you a finer grist. So far as I can make out, if you're looking at grain distilling, you need a higher percentage of flour in your in your composition of the the grist. So um, I think most of the grain that gets milled for grain distilling goes through a, a six-row mill. So you've got the um, the rollers are rotating, you know, several hundred RPM designed to, to crush the grain along its length without much damage to the husk. And then there's revolving beaters that throw the fine grits and the flour outwards through filters, which are I think are something like a mesh and the, the, the more coarse grits can't penetrate through the, the mesh of the filter and they'll pass down to the second pair of rollers. The initial grind looks to be between 1.3 and 1.9 mil 
to crack the kernels. Possibly one or two, one or two of the rollers are powered, or maybe only one of the rollers is powered, or maybe they're operating at different speeds to produce a shearing effect uh, and a more effective grind. The second set of rollers are closer together, so you're looking at 0.3 to 1.0 mil, um, and the, the the husk effectively is falling through to remain more or less intact. Now all of these measurements can be adjusted and and distilleries may have to look at adjusting their mill with each batch of malt that they take in. There was somebody recently was talking, was it? I can't remember where I heard about there were somebody, was it on Isla? Somebody phoned up, I think I'm speaking to one of the guys at the distillery or I heard this on a podcast or something and the um, one distillery worker to the other one says, your, your yields down there, you know, your yields are, you know, something's going wrong. And I think they were both getting batches of malt from the same maltster and turns out that one of the distilleries hadn't changed the the the, the spec on their mill for years and years they just <laughs> set it and that was it that was it good to go you know 10 years ago and they left it and they never <laughs> looked at it since so, so you know this is the thing you're talking about there's so many aspects at play and the the, the the hand of the distillery workers coming into play and the knowledge and experience of these guys knowing that okay we're going to have to set the set the rollers slightly further apart, slightly closer together, to give us the the product that we need, to give us the percentages of flour that we need. And, and I, something I picked up too is that that it's probably one of the more dangerous areas in the in the distillery because you've got all that fine powder flying about from the flour. Yeah. So part of the reason you would want to do part of the the dressing, take out any metal, because if you get any sparks in that process, it could be explosive. Yeah, so we're, we're we're proceeding through the through the mill. We get to the point where we're, we're we've got the we've got the flour, the grits, and the husks coming out the end. And you you were talking about the um they're looking for twenty percent husk, seventy percent grits, ten percent flour. It's maybe worth introducing the the different types of tons that we're going to be dealing with because um you mentioned them earlier on, and it's something that bamboozled me for a long time was <laughs> a traditional ton semi-lotter ton and full lotter ton and um you and i have had conversations and amongst friends of uh, and i've posed the question can anybody tell me what the hell's the difference between yeah. a lot or a semi-lotter and a traditional ton um, yeah, in, in some ways so in, in some ways that conversation feels like the kernel of scots whiskey explorers exactly no that it's it's got to this like <laughs> to get to find out what these three items are well, we're going through the process of finding out what a number of other items are. <laughs> but I would, <laughs> I would even, I'd be, I'd, I'd make it a point on every distillery tour that I went on. <laughs> after once, once this question get lodged in my head, <laughs> every distillery that I went to, and they would go, and this is a traditional master, and this is a semi-lotter master, and I'd say, okay, uh, could you expand on that, please, and what's the difference? And nobody. Nobody could ever tell me, and that's that's not to denigrate any of the yeah. fantastic tour guides that are out there who amaze me with how much information they they, uh -huh. they do have at their fingertips. But I think what's been so strange about this episode and looking into mashing at this level, I'm still not 100 percent sure. <laughs> I'm uh -huh. nearly I'm nearly there. I, I've I've got some definite yeah, things. Well. 
I've got some definite things that I, that I would put money on. This is the, these are the differences, but mm. there's still a bit of reading sentences and thinking mm, that's not that's not a very exact point of fact that they've they've made when they've been reading it. So, um, well, maybe maybe between us we can enlighten one another because also there's a process here because you've got well your basic mash ton no matter what the starting point here is. No matter what it's made of, and it could be stainless steel, it could be cast mm. iron. Mm. Um, it might have a top, it might not. Um, it might be, as was going Scotia, and I think going to Jura for a while, they had cotton steel was oh, yeah. one of the materials they used, which is a as an a kind of mix of alloys and steel. It has a particular rusting quality, but but then that rust protects the metal. So that that had a had a small um, moment of vogue. But no matter what it is that you've got, you're going to have, like you said, that vented floor. Mm. And the idea then is that it's a bit like coffee maker in reverse, because you, if you put the coffee over the top of your mesh before you plunged it and then you gather mm. the coffee underneath, it's, it's similar to that. But each each turn starts, that's the basic principle. It's going to have a false floor, false bottom floor. You put in some hot water to start, a sparge, which has been kept from the last uh, mashing because it went high enough sugar content in the, in the last water that went through. Uh, but it, that comes in usually around about 63, 64 degrees. There'll be a, a layer of that on the floor of, of the, the mash tun, and then you introduce whatever weight of barley, or sorry, of malted barley that's now been milled and ground down to grist onto the top of that, and then you're going to add the correct proportion of, of water again. With the exception of one, and we've, we've, uh, we've picked up a few outliers already along here, uh, but we'll, and we'll come back to Tiananich, because I, I think there's something, in, they've got something to say too about actually where the term mashing comes from as well, but we'll, right, see, we can hold on to that, we'll hang that up for a wee minute or two. You've got your basic big round vessel, you've got your ground grist malted barley in there, got hot water on it and you want to extract the sugars and like anyone making porridge you need to stir it and that's that's where our stirring gear or plowing rakes in what's called the traditional mash tun and there's there seems to be more like blades in your loiter and your semi-loiter so I've, I've always thought when I've looked in a you know that your older style mash tuns that have got those big gears that sit in the middle those kind of chamfered big steel wheels, they always look a wee bit grimy. You can see they've worked hard over their life. But those that particular gearing has just like big curved ploughs that go through the mash. And they're not terribly efficient, but I've I've always imagined them that be like swimmers because of the way the shape, if you were doing the front crawl, if, if it were possible to front crawl through, no, in 64 degrees of water uh, through this but that that's essentially the process yeah. of it's, it's quite inefficient and it's mixed but it's still mixing up well agitating is it, is it, is it, I, I, I've, I've introduced a concept there that I know that's a judgment that it, it produces it helps stir the stir the mash mm -hmm. that helps extract the sugars mm -hmm. and that 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 sugary water is is gathering, you know, is mashing up through the whole process of of the grist that's interacting with the water. 
and but that that first run might be as as short as twenty minutes. But that, before before we get to that, we were talking. We'd introduce the 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 the, the quandary of what's the difference between the trad lotto and semi lotto. So the, the traditional turn I take to be one that's cast iron. I think by and large that's what I understand it to be. Yeah. And, and, and any actually don't have a lid either. With no lid and with the rakes that would be attached to a spindle in the, in the middle of the yeah. turn and they would rotate and agitate the mash. Yeah, and big heavy rakes. They look like, it almost looks like farm machinery. Yeah, yeah. And then the the lotter gear, instead of those very almost violent looking rotations, the lotter gear, counterintuitively for me, seem they say it's it's more effective in in its extraction of the sugars, but it looks to me to be a more gentle action of the the the, the machine is rotating blades through the through the yeah. mash, and that to me. Counterintuitively, I would think well, that's not going to agitate it enough to to release those sugars, but apparently so. And it's maybe the that greater agitation coming from the greater amount of blades, because by virtue of the the heavier gearing, the traditional one, I think you're maybe only going to get four rakes or something and rotating around at any one time, and possibly two. I, I, I would need to go and look at pictures to be absolutely uh, certain. Okay, but. But in your in your semi loiter and your loiter, those blades because they they're, they're in two dimensions, aren't they? They're they're horizontal and and vertical because they're they're kind of like so. If you imagine blade with with little kind of fins um, fins at an angle, yeah. That are, but but those fins go the full length of the vertical blade, mm-hmm. so you're agitating all of the mash all of the time. As it were, okay. As it as it goes through, sure. Okay. Yeah. So what what if we were talking? If we mentioned that the traditional one was a swimmer, <laughs> I'm trying to think now what the comparison would be for the for the semi loiter and the loiter going round through the process because that, that's, that's much more like um almost a handheld mixer in there. Yeah. But you've got but you've got eight handheld mixers on a row. What what was something I'd never heard of before was, uh, well, I think I might have heard that some of the lotter gear has reverse gears, so it can it can go in reverse. It doesn't always have to be rotating in clockwise or anti-clockwise. It can go the opposite. But also, those blades can move up and down, and one of the functions of those blades in the draining process is to gently press on the mash bed to extract Ah. more what so you're not you're never going to get that with the rake and the plough no no that, that's your that's your full loiter uh mash turn you're talking about there with such sophisticated blades that can go up and down and backwards and forwards so the the, the loiter tons being a development that was uh pinched from the brewing trade and i th- I, th- I, I couldn't find an exact date but i'm kind of surmising it was somewhere around about the 60s and when tomatin i think were the they were first, weren't they? Yeah. Um, 70-something, I think, for tomato. 1974. Oh, 1974, tomato put in, yeah. Oh, right. But there was, a, there was a quite a bit of pinching went on because Glen Spey 
who'd be mentioned last time has been one of the places that developed uh, drum malting. So there must be there's a lot of experimenting has clearly been going mm. on at Glen Cafe. They kind of got the final final dibs on certainly semi loiter mash tons. So that that became as so often happens, it became a bit of an industry standard for a while. It was a semi loiter mash ton, but it was also known as a Glen's Bay mash ton. Ah, okay. Developed at Glen's Bay Distillery, despite the fact that Tomatin went first, but Glen's Bay were close on their heels. So, are there any other elements in in the 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 equipment and the the how it's run and how it's operated that could differentiate between a lotter and a semi lotter and a and a traditional ton? So, if you if we've got the blades that can rotate and cut through the mash, but they've also got the fins and the, the, that apparatus can can be raised and lowered to exert pressure on the mash bed. Are there, is there anything that you found to clearly differentiate between lotter and semi-lotter? Only in as much as you get more variation of movement in a full lotter compared to a semi-lotter. Okay. You know, the, the, the cutting gear or the mixing gear in a semi-lotter is much more rigid compared to all the bells and whistles that you can get on a full lotter where, like you were saying, it can be geared to work backwards, the angle of the blades can be changed so that it, it creates a different type of, uh, it, it's doing two functions, it's not just breaking up and mixing up the mash, but it's also then creating pressure to yeah. extract the wart. I think there was a couple of other things, I think, that are pertinent to this discussion. The traditional ton, we could say, utilises a process of, of infusion, so the malted barley put into a hot infusion in the of hot water if i'm right it sounds like the like you say the the the, the first water will go in and that's the, the 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 remains of the the previous batch the third water or sometimes the fourth water of the, of the previous batch and it's in the traditional ton that the malted barley and the hot water meet for the first time but i think in the brewing world where the lotter tons originated the lotter ton was charged with the barley already infusioned with hot mm. water yeah so for for brewers and the full lotter ton the, the mash is mixed and infused prior to transfer to the lotter ton in malt distilleries uh, this might lead to higher performance efficiently providing very high extraction and good runoff characteristics. In other words, a, a clean and fast runoff. A semi-lotter could be a lotter ton with some of that lotter running gear, the, the mm. apparatus that, that, that manipulates the mash, but it's with a traditional infusion mash protocol. So on one hand, you've got the traditional ton where the, in which the the malt and the water have have are meeting for the first time, so to speak. But in a lotter ton, they've already met before, and there's been a time for them to infuse prior to being deposited in in the ton. The other thing that that I found, oh yeah, so the the range of semi lotter tons, the range of difference between one lotter semi lotter ton somewhere in one distillery and another one in another distillery. The, the, the differences can be so broad that it covers almost everything between a traditional ton and a full lotter ton. So there seems to be 
no strict definition of what semi-lototon yeah. is, other than from what I can take is it's the mash in a semi-lototon, the mash doesn't meet outside of the ton beforehand. And one other thing I think with the lotter I could find was when they're draining, correct me if I'm wrong, but the process of hydrostatic balance is employed whereby another vessel is allowed to collect some of the wort and the those two vessels balance their volume so you then can draw the warts from the, the pipe that connects those two vessels and the wart will drain slower and won't rush through the, the mash bed and draw through more solids. I think yeah, that's it's kind quite, of... it's quite important for you know for a num both for taste and just for practicality to be able to control that the drawing off of the wart because if you exert too much pressure on the floor you'll you might want some solids through that that seems all along the way we've heard about clear water and cloudy water and how that the different flavor developments from mm -hmm. from those those starting points mm -hmm. but you know there's, there's the practical reality of uh, you don't want to break your mash tun or you could get it could get stuck you could get so gloopy above the floor that you might need to, to kind of release the uh, release the grist again. Now I, I'm I'm not quite sure where that stands with it, but I imagine, given that the semi loiter and the loiter tons are so um, are are that little bit more efficient mm -hmm. at, at keeping, if you like, like, keeping the solids and the the bits and pieces of barley that are left over in the grist floating around the the liquid. That I, I imagine that that's less of a problem problem compared to your old traditional mash tun where the mixing isn't quite so thorough by comparison yeah that's what i imagine anyway so there's the the um there's the mashing machine that is a new one on me i didn't know about the mashing machine prior to doing a bit of no? reading up on this no, so, no, new to me too um, so the mash machine there's two types of mashing machines. Most distilleries still use a, a variation of Steele's mash machine to mix the grist and the mashing liquor as it's being projected into the into the mash tun. So you'll have the, your third water at the correct temperature. You don't want it too hot because that's going to kill the enzymes. Uh, the, the enzymes operate and are, 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 are most active at round about 50 degrees. So you don't want your mashing liquor too hot um, so steel's mash machine uses mechanical screws to mix the grist and the liquor into a slurry i think there's a pipe the liquor's coming through the pipe and the the, the grist is injected into that pipe and there's screws that mix it all together to form a slurry and there's also a vortex machine which is the other type that uh, injects the liquor and it kind of does it in a way that inside the pipe it's there's a, a swirling vortex of liquor and the, the grist is added to that to make the slurry. When they meet that's called the striking temperature and it's got to be controlled in such a way that usually by adding cold water to around about 68 or 70 degrees to give the correct and desired what, what they call the spout temperature when it comes out the spout into the mash tun. And we know the enzymes are going to be working better around about 
50 degrees, but if it's too high, you're looking at deactivation of the enzymes and eventually it's going to be a kind of in, incomplete fermentation that will be taking place. So you're, you're, you're doing your end product no good at all. You're making it really difficult to, to work with. So you'd said earlier on about putting a little bit of that first liquor in there to, to keep the plates up the, the, so that so the, yeah, the, 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 so the floor that, isn't then, so cold. Yeah, it isn't so cold, and nor will the the grist just rest straight on top of it. That it's already got a degree of float, um, and and like you say, you know, there's I I couldn't find any um, definitive descriptions of you know X distillery does three adding the water makes three sparges or or four that. that I got a sense that that's a little bit more nuanced and depends maybe more on um, what's going on with the with the grist at any particular time. If there's felt a, a need for a fourth water to go in, but again, you know, those it's the first two, it's the primary waters that are going to be the most productive. Mm-hmm. And and it seems that there's you can, you're not going to get more than about 50 percent of what you put in in terms of liquid would come out as what. Um, that you would keep, you know, and again, we've mentioned the, the third and fourth waters. They they don't go on in the process. They go back. Yeah, recycled. The, you know, to the sparse tank or the weak warts tank. You know, but, uh, you know that, that's such, it's such a simple description, isn't it? Weak warts. They're they're mm. not strong enough. <laughs> that you would want to use them. They, they're going back to get their uh, to get their spinach to get stronger. And uh, what I was understanding as well is that you. You would add kind of water in terms of liters to kilograms in a kind of ratio of four to one for the first water and then two to one for the second. So you're not adding the same amount of water each time because it's again, it seems that first water is the one that or the first two are the most productive. Mm-hmm. Um, Just when you're you're talking about recycling back into the 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 weak watts, and we were talking about a lot of tons as well. It was I found information that would suggest that. Lotter tons, due to the efficiency, have a capability of working with a, a higher percentage of fine flowers in the in the grist. Mm-hmm. But the downside of that is initially, when when the ton is filled, you can get some fine, some fines, some of the, the finer flowers uh, escaping through the slots. In the, in the in the bottom of the floor, right at the start of the of the of the mm-hmm. mashing, um, so some distilleries actually recycle these and they go back into the they go back into the second water. So, well, presumably one... that's that's another statement about the nature of the efficiency of the loader that there's not just bells and whistles inside. Mm. There's pipes and taps and redirection possible from the outside to. To accommodate these ins and outs and the vagaries of of the actual process, mm-hmm. and is is there are loiter and semi loiter tons easier to clean? Because you kind of this old image of the traditional ton and some poor fella in there with a shovel at the end of the shift was, digging um, it out. There was footage on online uh, this week of the guys. It was a it was you know when you do um a speeded up video, um. And it was the guys at, and it was the guys at Glen Turret, and they were there's a tiny wee mash tun there, and they were they were cleaning it out. It was at the end of the mash, and there was the two of them, you know, sweeping it up, and you could see, you could see the plates being moved and the, all the the the, the, the uh, spent 
grains were were all getting shoveled away. But I looked into it a wee bit at Glen Turret, and what was obvious when you were looking at it was there's no gear, there's no there's no rakes and ploughs, there's no knives, there's nothing. Is that folk in there with a, a big wooden oar? They do it with their own wooden paddles by hand. <laughs> the Glen Turret Spurtle. Yeah. <laughs> well, they call it a rouser. And I, I contacted the distillery and uh, I said, are you guys still doing this by hand? And they said, yeah, and the production team make the rousers on site. Oh, superb. So you, you, and it's tiny as well, you know, it's a tiny, tiny little mash tun. Mm-hmm. Um, and do they make they make the, the rousers of old pieces of uh, larch that have once been a, an underback? Or? I, I, I don't know what they're, what they're made from. Yeah. But, uh, I mean that's a, that's a that's a one off, you know. There's nobody else doing that. I can't think of anyone. I no, I know nowhere have I seen that. That's that's pretty heavy for that, isn't it? <laughs> I think they're still up for sale. Did Edrington not put them up for sale? Yeah, yeah, they a couple did. of years ago. That's a shame. Anyway, so we're um, we've got our first water in, and you were saying it's you know twenty thirty minutes for the first mash. Yeah, the mashing in, and then that gets drained off. The second one comes in a wee bit higher, maybe another five or six degrees centigrade higher. I was reading that the, all of this agitation doesn't happen immediately. Apparently, it's not. There's, the rakes don't go until the end of the first mash because mm. they don't early, they don't want to rake it too early because that will force more of the fine particles through the false floor. Um, and that might cause some build-up or clogging problems later on when the wart is being run off. And apparently they call it making up the bed when they're doing the raking yeah. at, the, at the end of the, the, at the end of the first mash. And then let it settle for let it settle for ten minutes and then run it off. And then the last two are just really about if there's two or one, just about gathering the last of the the sugars, the last squeeze of the tea bag, really. <laughs> <laughs> oh, another thing that caught my eye that was one of the differences between traditional and lotter tons was when they're putting in the water, when they're putting in the second water, on the lotter tons, they will put in the, the second water. It seems to me, if I'm reading it correctly, that the the first water is still being drained off. Oh, really? Yeah. There, there's some capability that there, a time-saving um, efficiency that they can start injecting the second water just towards the end of the, the first wart being run off. Um, whereas on the trad tons, they have to run off the first wart, stop draining, and then, as you would imagine, refill the with hot water. So... Uh, I'm not entirely sure what that's about, really, other than saving time. No, and again, that that strikes me as really peculiar as well, because, well, maybe I understand why, but you were saying like there, there was caution about the possibility of flour getting into the mechanisms too quickly. Mm-hmm. But then, is that possible then that once the, the grist is wet, that doesn't become the same issue, but it's once it's soaked, 
So you can then force a wee bit more water onto it while there's water draining through to the underbacks. Or sorry, water draining to the underbacks. Yeah, um, did you did you have a notion of where the term mashing came from? Um I'm sure I read it in Gavin Smith's It Was Ed. I don't have it to hand. So I think I had read maceration, but I can remember I have it was never used in, in my family, but I, I did hear folk who talked about leaving the tea to mash. Right. <laughs> okay. And so it, you know, to infuse, you use that mm-hmm. meaning. You know, they they somebody put the hot water into the tea and they were leaving it then to build up its flavour. Mm-hmm. So I, I I thought that was an a, it didn't that didn't seem the same as maceration. Maceration implies kind of ma- getting mashed up, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. So but maybe maybe that's the cross the cross fertilization between maceration and and mash. But also there was some kind of in the context of that, there's a kind of old description of what was a mashing. Was what I can only understand is like an early form of or a way of carrying tea and sugar together to your work. Uh-huh. And a wee, a wee rolled up bit of paper. So you've got you've got your ready mix of your tea leaves and your sugar just to add hot water now. That's the best I can do. I, I couldn't. I don't. I've never met anyone who's ever used a mashing, or read anything more about it. I couldn't tell you if that you put you put the wee paper roll in your cup, so it was like a tea, or whether you uh, then opened that up. But it, it's uh, like a, a portion of tea and sugar already made. And again, that a bit like the dictionary suggesting the origins of mashing in the context of leaving the tea to mash was much more northern England okay. and parts of Scotland. I, I hadn't heard. I hadn't heard mash as maceration in any other context. And I'd always thought of when I was at a distillery, or the mash is, you know, it's just like putting the, the teapot on. I think Gavin Smith's got something more to say about it. I was reading that the other day. I can't remember what he said. Yeah. No, and I'm just skim reading here. And, uh, other than to mix, mm-hmm. or something way back as far as around about, around about 1,000. Yeah, mash wort. To mix malt with hot water with a form mm. of wort. Well, okay. I remember that that's obviously way way back into brewing. Aye. But that that also brings in that's a chance to speak about our outlier, Tiananich. Because they, they don't have the mash done. They no. sold it to Ben Lossy. Because they have two processes, don't they? They have a mash filter. Yep. And they have an I'm not quite sure the pronunciation, as known hammer mill. So they don't care about flour. They want flour. They just have, they yeah. just destroy. As I, I mean, I'm maybe over exaggerating my own head and thinking about it, but they, they grind to a very, very fine mill and then put the mash through filters called mm-hmm. a, a Mura 2001. And that, that sounds such a space age thing to me, but maybe it was. They only put it in in 2000. So. It wasn't that space age at the time, but but so then what they have, they collect the mash in these filters, and then squeeze gently squeeze the filters to get the water out. Which so we seem to have gone around a bit of a circle there between tea and tea bags, and, and certainly um, in conceptual understanding of it, I'm not quite sure that that's how it works, and I imagine that the mash filters are a wee bit stronger than the fiddly bits of paper that we make tea bags out of, but. In, term, in the terms of the conceptual idea that, that I, I'm, I'm struggling to see what the what the difference is in terms of you make your fine wort and then you filter it. What I was reading about mash filters, there is some literature 
suggesting that there's no major benefits over conventional mashing that it's mm. but others would disagree um i know mark rainier at waterford calls his mash filter the terroir extractor extraordinaire <laughs> <laughs> not being one for uh, hyperbole you know, oh, <laughs> old <never>. mark <laughs> Um, but that, but then maybe that's that another that's a development then that hasn't quite taken hold. Mm -hmm. You know, it's new. Presumably, mm -hmm. there'll be all sorts of descriptions about efficiencies and stuff like that. I, I, I don't know, but it's not it's not taking a grip. No, that's a it's a technological uh, cul-de-sac at the moment. Yeah, um, yeah. But there's more people. More and more people are are, are using them. So you've got um, Tina Nish. Inch Darney also have mash filter. Uh, Waterford, I think Middleton have one as well. So these guys also they, it uses the the this conversion vessel is what I was looking for earlier on that vessel that where the the malt and the the hot liquor where they first meet is a conversion vessel where the mash is mixed. It's held at 64, 65 degrees to allow for the conversion of the uh, fermentable sugars. Uh, then it's transferred to the filter for wort separation. So the filter, there's no, there's no conversion taking place. But in in regular tons, the conversion takes place in the ton. But now, if we're looking at the mash filter, it's only filtering. That's all it's doing. It's just separating the wort. And they want finer flour. They want more flour in their in their mix because they don't need the husk to provide the the filtration bed mm. to separate to help separate the, 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 the liquid from the solids. And that's why the, you'll find that there's high pressure hammer mills are used whenever there's a, a, a mash filter because that produces more flour. But the are, uh, is husk not quite, does husk not have an influence on flavour as well? I think they produce more tannin. I think the, the higher your husk, right? it can. Okay. Yeah. And, and also if, the, um, if it's been... If it's peated malt, then we would understand that the 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 the, the phenols ad adhere to the husk. So that's not saying that the, the husks are still involved, though, aren't they? So they're still involved in that conversion process. They're just not used entirely in the same way. Yeah, and the, the, well, and well, I think yeah. So if the peat is adhering to the husk, and you have a there's a higher husk percentage. Then that that is where you're going to get your your phenols, and if they're also a bit slightly tannic, that that's where that's going to come from as well, isn't it? Yeah. I wonder if in the hammer mill, is it if you're getting a higher percentage of flour, what are you getting a lower percentage of? Is that is it going to be husks? Or? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I I just imagine you know again, you you might have read a wee bit further, but I I imagine that they just everything was ground almost to just like. Like the dust, it was so, so yeah. fine that you yeah. would, that the husk would be ripped up in the process too. I've read that in um, with mash filters, in the, in the lab experiments at least they've they've got extracted ninety nine point five percent of the fermentable sugars out of the malt. You know that, that that's a lot. <laughs> You're not leaving yeah. really anything, and also it's faster. So they're talking about faster warts collection because you're you're looking at lots of. It's not just one filter that the whole thing gets pushed through. It's many many screens of filters that get filled individually, and the the the, the wart gets pushed through. 
through the, the, the filtering screen. So it seems to be that it's, you're looking at a faster collection. So the efficiency, again, driving that. That's, that's, that's quite, quite something. And are, are there any discussions in that about how then you would define your work, whether you would want that clear or cloudy? Because your, your cloudy work's going to have more of those flowery... Serial characteristics. Yeah, so that, that, would, that was more likely to have you know, you're going to get the multi spicy nutty stuff mm -hmm. coming through if it's got a wee bit of, well, you know, it's got a wee bit of cereal still in it at that point, even though it's in small particles. But the clearer water is going to be, those is not going to have that same degree by virtue of it being screened out. So I wonder, well, I bet you, I don't need to wonder, I bet you that process is so sophisticated that the actual filters can be adjusted to create a clear wart or a cloudy wart. I don't know, I've not read, yeah, that's maybe... I, I can't imagine someone would go to the expense of putting in something like that and not have, like, your extra bell or whistle added on. So they only do, um, they do two waters as well, and uh, with a mash filter, they'll collect the strong warts collected from each filter plate, cooled and then pumped to the fermenters, and the second sparge Will just produce weak warts, and that goes back to the to the mashing vessel, to the conversion vessel. Right. So they, uh, they, the do mash. they do everything in the first water, in their mash filter. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's impressive. Yeah. Well that, that well, that explains actually why you would have a third and fourth water if even by a loiter or a or a semi loiter mash tun, you're only getting about fifty percent of the. Mm -hmm. Well, fifty percent of the volume, but I'm not. I'm not sure what that kind of sugar extraction level would be. I need to go back to the scientific drawing board on that one to know how much of your your older mechanisms extract the, the sugar to what degree. But it, clearly, it's recognised as a slightly inefficient process because of the fact of those extra waters. You're, you're having to do it again. Yeah. You know, so you're doing it. You're taking two, but you're doing it four times. By its nature, that sounds mm -hmm. well. Maybe it's meant to be slightly inefficient because you know something that you picked up along the way is that, and and maybe is a an underlying theme as we move along the process that speed and efficiency aren't necessarily means to make good whiskey. It seems it seems to be highly sought after though. A lot of the time, do it faster. Do it do it more times per week. That seems to be, that looks to be an operating model in a lot of places, rather than yeah. taking time. Okay, so we're we're draining the we're draining the wort off, and as we were saying earlier, so the, 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 in the in the lot of tons, it's raked, or the the, the 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 knives will cut the beds slowly at the end of the mashing process. It's rake, if it's a traditional ton, the rakes will be moving slowly, just at the end. The knives might. Uh, cut down into the bed and press down, squeezing out the last of the liquor. The second water or the, or the third water is also, when, when it's added, the second water, if, if there's sparging nozzles, sometimes they don't just have one big hose pumping the water in, sometimes it's nozzles all the way around the rim of the right, yeah, top of the like tun. To, yeah, just to provide a more even spread of the water and also to maintain the temperature as well. So it looks like the, the mashman's got a, a a job to, to balance the runoff rate 
monitor the level of the wort going through to the washback and looking at how long that's taking place. In practice, that might mean a kind of looking for a specific amount of wort in the washback before the second water is added. Depending on the system being used, the second water can sometimes be added while the first water is still draining. That strikes me as, as quite odd. And then the third water, again, hotter water to stimulate that kind of conversion. Yeah, so we're we're pretty much all the way through getting all the getting all the wort out. You'd be wanting to be cooling that down, of course. Exactly. Yes. And I, in thinking about this, I was struck by two comparisons. Even from early on, you know, when you started picking up, understand about whiskey, there was the, the great legend of Bamore that heated the swimming pool or the, in McTaggart Leisure Centre from the the heat produced from the from the process. And certainly the last thing I visited at the, the heat exchanger, this is, it was about a building all of its own. It's a massive radiator process, really, really impressive. And the, the, the guide was extolling the virtues of just how efficient that heat exchange process was. Now, not having my full engaged geek on that particular day, I didn't know if that was the heat exchange for the whole of the distillery process. Mm -hmm. You know, so that there were other there were other things feeding into the heat that wasn't so the still process might might have been might have been doing that as well. But what I was struck by was how massive the heat exchanger was, and and it was driven by notions around efficiency. And was thinking that have you seen the the Morton refrigerator in Edward Dower? You know, it's it's the last one of its kind apparently in distillation use. Um, I had a wee I'd, a bit of a dig, and I, I don't think they've 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 brought one out of retirement from somewhere because you now the Edward Dower have, have got another distillery the same size on site now. It's so it's two there's two Edward Dowers, um, but they haven't brought out a a Morton refrigerator, which looks about the size of what from what I can remember looks about the size of a a large snooker table, and about that and that kind of height and depth with. With a bath, you know, so you've got a bath maybe of six or eight inches, um, and it's got a cold water inlet and a warm water outlet. So you pour in cold water at one end, and it it just goes across pipes in this bed or bath, and then and the wort comes in and just make through by gravity works its way across the pipes and and scoots out another. Another exit, you know, and so you know, it's essentially cold water's cooling down the water. I mean, compare that to you know this space age thing that sits outside Bromwood Distillery, yeah. yeah, powering the, the McTaggart Leisure Centre across the way. It was certainly night and day, and maybe not a great surprise that Edward Dower didn't choose to install something that is so beautifully inefficient as that in terms of retaining heat. In terms of recycling energy, all those kinds of it just didn't compare. But just while we're there, and we like these noodly details along the way, there is a there was a suggestion that the wort would come in off from the mash tun, and it was exposed to the air. It wasn't sealed in any way. It ran. It had to run across the refrigerator itself to the exit point, creating an oxidization point which then is claimed would affect Edward Dower's spirit mm. further down the line. So it's, it's another wee bit of 
you can understand that anxiety to keep things absolutely as they are because if you like your spirit you don't want to be messing about with it yeah even to the point that that particular situation for Edridower, they claimed that just that short exposure to the air created a difference in terms of the process for their wart before it disappeared to be held before then they got into making it into the beers. Well, I suppose if you've if you've got something that no one else is doing, you're going to be shouting about it, aren't you? Yeah, it, I mean, it is certainly unique in the that I that I know and. Uh, the we kind of look about well, what is a modern refrigerator? Because I was kind of doing it from memory, mm-hmm. and it, you know, the stuff that was coming up would would be like those adverts on the reprint of Alfred Barnard. You know that the role we hand <laughs> by drawn and things like that. <laughs> so they're they're from some time ago, and I've I've no idea how old the one would be at Edward Hour, but certainly certainly a long time gone. We were talking a minute ago about the um, the mash filter, ninety nine point five percent effectiveness at extracting the the fermentable sugars. But I've also got some notes here that the first and second waters in a in a traditional tun or a lotter tun will garner ninety percent of the starches oh. converted. Oh. So you're you're looking at pretty high success rates there. The third water only provides you with one percent. It's a one percent solution. Uh, so it's obviously too weak to be added to the wash back, mm. uh, so it's kept for the next one. Well, that, that's that's more impressive than I thought. Hmm. Maybe not. Maybe not too much difference between the normal mash tun process and the and the filter. Maybe it's just easier and cleaner and quicker for the mash filter if you've got it there. I could find some comments about cloudy wort. But not to not nothing really specific about what clear warts is going to give you. So, other than than the the cloudy wart was the the adding of those of those more cereally, mm-hmm. which you can understand because clearly barley is getting through. Well, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. well, I have not had the the industry experience of sitting there looking at two stills running, one running with cloudy wart and one running with clear wart. And then tasting the results there and then, taking my notes and then waiting 10 years. Um, <laughs> so in, in, in this context, I have to bow to the, to the wisdom, whether it's conventional wisdom of the, of the industry or not. Yeah. But it does make sense that, at least at a naive level, that if you're adding, if you're allowing more cereal elements through into the wart, then somehow there's going to be an influence on yeah. food. If it's not only just those. The nutty, multi spicy elements, but maybe also like the kind of fennels and tannins that you might get from the husk. Uh-huh. Again, you know, we, we must be talking micro elements here, but it all adds up. It's the multiplier down the line, isn't it? Yeah, I, I read something that was stating that there's a, the, a higher range of congeners are kind of allowed through. If you've got a cloudy wart, then you've, you've got a higher range. A larger range, a higher range of congeners, but they tend to be more heavier notes, so th- they might mask some of the lighter flavors. So it could uh, be uh, if you're looking for something that's not nutty and spicy and cereally, if you're looking for for that kind of more floral fruit forward flavor profile, you might be looking at a slightly you you might be seeking a slightly clearer wort. I don't know. Also, if I'm remembering like, rightly, 
you need a little bit of those elements to extract the higher alcohols. If you don't have those, then your cut's gonna it's not you're not it's not gonna make the cut. You actually need those congeners to create the their alcohol to ext- get be able to extract your alcohol levels further down the line. Right. It's all in the balance, Stuart. Yeah, it's there's so much variety going on. You know, everybody's doing it everybody's doing it differently. Um it's quite staggering when you see I went through one of the malt whiskey yearbooks and I I, I tried to make a list as much as I could of you know, just tallying up out of all the information provided, how many traditional tons, how many semi-lotter tons, how many full lotter tons are were. So I'll bore you with some with some detail with some uh, stats. The information that I could get from the from the yearbook provided me with information relating to 105 different tons, 14 of which were traditional. By that, I would I would garner. Uh, cast iron, 47 semi-lotter, and 44 full lotter. Mm. One of the entries didn't say what type of ton was involved at all. There was a, a, a bunch of information, a bunch of stats about the construction and the makeup of the tons. So 42, out of all information I could find, 42 were noted as being of stainless steel construction, 12 were cast iron, one was clad in copper. I don't know whether that means it was a stainless steel clad in copper or uh, a cast iron clad in copper. Uh, six of them were open topped. Fifteen of them were, were topped with a copper dome. And that, that's your Glen Spey, that is. And interestingly, if you if you were looking at that information and you saw that Alavani had a cast iron ton, you would think, okay, cast iron ton, that's going to be a traditional ton. But no, they actually installed full lotter gear really well on a cast iron ton so some things are not quite always what they first appear to be yeah um i picked up too that there was a suggestion you know that the bigger the distillery or the more washbacks to be served the bigger the mash tun and i that that was playing out for a wee while now that back to edward Dower again it's got a wee tiny 1.1 ton mash tun Cast iron, traditional, mm-hmm. serves two washbacks. But further up the road, Milton Duff, whopping big eight ton, full loiter mash ton. But that and that's sixteen washbacks it's got to serve. So that's that's a lot of work that those have got to do to just keep pumping through yeah. your work to each of these. Mm-hmm. But um, there again, it's all it's all about a good fun noodly research. But there again there's outliers in this process and the you know the story about Bruchladi's mash tun, which is it's still huge. I mean, it's seven ton, but it's only got six washbacks to serve. So, and, and, and roughly, wash there isn't that much difference generally in terms of percentage in terms of washback size, I believe. But we might find that out in the next. The next <laughs> round. We might just be talking a load of rubbish now. But I mean, so that's you know that's roughly one to one. But Bunnahaven just up the road. It's got a massive twelve and a half ton, you know. So, and but that won't, uh, that's only six washbacks. And the reason I mentioned that is because local Isla legend has, you know, Boonhaven and Bruchladi were both opened in eighteen eighty one, and Boonhaven's mash tun arrived, but it was it wasn't the distillery wasn't ready for it to be installed, so it was taken down the road and installed at Bruchladi. 
foot, and that's no, that that's this you know classic seven ton open top cast iron traditional with the rakes and the swimmers uh-huh. and all that yeah. in it. Yeah, yeah. But when I haven't got round to ordering, well, well, I imagine now it's been it's been replaced. Now when I have and now have twelve and a half ton stainless steel mash ton, yeah. but theirs has got a copper dome, dome. So that's back to that Glen Spade thing. But it's still um, it's still a traditional stainless steel mash ton. But yeah, okay. So those those outliers, as you say, that where things are not quite as you might first expect, Altavani, traditional ton cast iron, but with a lot of gear fitted. Royal Loch Nagar, it's got an open topped traditional ton, but it's made from stainless steel. So you, you can't. I don't think you can equate stainless steel automatically means lotter or semi lotter. There's so yeah. many, so many variations and combinations of of all of these elements. I, I don't think the, there's any cast iron rules. <laughs> but you're talking about large tons equating with, you know, large output and large distilleries. So the the, the current Macallan mash ton, if you compare just for just for a moment, I've been casting about some numbers, but Lafroy five point five ton. Colhoman 1.2 ton, Scotia 2.8 ton, McAllen's ton can have can handle a 17 ton mash. Is that uh, in the new distillery? That's a new one. So you've got to remember that they've they've still got the old distillery mothballed, which oh. has got two tons ready to be used if needed, with an output of you know they could put 11 million liters out from the old distillery if they wanted to. <laughs> On top of the how many millions they do at the moment, I wonder if there's something in the in the moving about in the conversions end because although Mashtons tend to come from tended to come from Burton on Trent, which is no really a surprise because there's such a a brewing history thing going on there. Ah, okay. But, but there's also um, the New Mill Engineering Company in Elgin were involved in doing stuff and and. My reading of them, they were associated with the Glen Spade. But from what I could understand, they, they the last two they put in were in 1990 in Ben Nevis and in Speyside. So although Speyside's foundation as a distillery, I think goes way back to the 50s when Christie was involved in it. Um, and it didn't actually come on stream too much later. But New Mill Engineering... Those were the last two that they put in, so I wonder if, if that's where the the Glens Bay comes in. I mean, and Ben Nevis is a, has a full load term mash ton. So, but I think, like you're saying, you, you can't judge a mash ton by its cover. <laughs> Ballandalach being a prime example, they've got a, they've got a, a semi lotter ton that's clad in copper. For 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 reasons which I'm, I'm just not aware of i don't i don't know is it just for looks it's got a copper dome as well but they've chosen to to clad it in copper yeah or ben weach have got a traditional cast iron ton with a stainless steel shell i don't know whether that's an inside or the outside i don't there's just so many permutations and can you remember his um spring but springbank's got a cast iron ton yeah it's open top is it is yeah. it is it rakes and plows yeah 
It, that I, th- I think when I when I was describing the kind of farm machinery, mm-hmm. yeah, that's that's what I was thinking about having looked across that, looked into that mash tun and thought, oh, <laughs> that looks like it belongs in the back of a tractor, really. Aye. So yeah, again, Stuart, from we've slipped into the boring part of the distillery and found found quite a lot to be noodly about. I think I, there was just so much going on. I was I was li- I literally woke up the other day thinking about wart separation. <laughs> you know, I shouldn't admit that. Well, I I, I appreciate your commitment. <laughs> um yeah, I don't know it's a, it may well be that there's like we're finding out things about barley that we could go back and reprise episode one and put in new information i'm sure there's there's going to be stuff that comes out becomes apparent about the mashing process probably stuff we've we've maybe missed out i don't know is there little details or or things that if there's any mashmen that ever listen to this god can you guys get in touch with us and let us know you know are we are, are we close to the mark or are we uh is our war very very weak <laughs> yeah I think we are heading back to the sparge tank. <laughs> well, but again, I think I'm struck by again how it's not it's not a straightforward process in and of itself. It's not a straightforward process by comparison with each distillery. Each one has its own nuances, and those nuances feed in to the spirit that those distilleries are trying to make. But also, I'm, I was struck by how the grade of milling has an influence the way mm-hmm. things are milled your proportions of husk and grisk and flour the type of mashing that goes on the turn the type of turn and you would have to you might think that the outer the outer doesn't matter but surely the inner does so there's stainless steel cotton steel cast iron i think um, this this uh, discussion about uh, materials and how they affect flavour. It's just going to, you know, what's coming around the corner with the um, stainless steel washbacks and Oregon pine and the larch and all that. That's going to, uh, these things, I don't think, are, are you are you ever going to get to the bottom of it? I don't know. No. And, you know, I, I, like we said, I suppose, early on with barley, for those that want to make it possible to pick out particular elements of barley, then that, that seems right and proper, you know. From those at the the most nuanced end, I and mean, I think Waterford st- stands out. But the, there are other distillers out there who choose to distill with particular barley types mm-hmm. and to express particular flavour. That could be Highland Park, probably Razi, I think. Springbank certainly. Brookladdy's another. You can go in that direction, or you can choose to produce something that is less batch oriented it's much more homogenized it's much more about a standardized product so i think i think you said you can choose to do that thing you can choose to make it more homogenized some of the some of the big guys i think don't have any choice in it just because of the way the the the, the systems are run the way that the the, just the pure logistics of it they can't do it any other way they can't yeah i think that's part well because again there's influence of other priorities Perhaps out with the distillery, 
that are putting pressure on the decide to produce in a particular way. But I think all of that plays into the you know the the matrix and the maze that is how you actually end up with a, a drinkable drink at the at the end of this process. It's quite fascinating and and reassuring really that mm. for all those great mechanizations, there's there are these so called efficiencies are actually exerting their influence on an organic process which will t- will take it will also take its own its own course. What's striking me along those lines is that I can recall early days getting involved in whiskey and being my mind being blown that the, all of these whiskies taste different and there's only three ingredients. But now looking looking at it from a slightly different angle, there might only be three ingredients, but there's so many different variations in the process and the way that it's the way that it's run and the decisions are made. People are whether it's cut points or the temperature of the sparge, the you know how long the what does he call it underletting the first water that goes into the mash tun, how long that's left there to heat the mash the the the, the plates. The underletting is just if you if you if your mash got stuck, you'd squish the water in from underneath. All right, but, but you like you said, you, it's not a case of just fire everything in. But it's no it's no, no wonder it's no wonder that there's so many different flavors of whiskey. We're, we're not even touching on maturation yet. <laughs> it's, it's it's no wonder there's so many different styles. Let's even just of new make. It's no wonder mm. there's so many different flavors out there when you look at. Just we we we're we're only on step three or four of of everything that the whole process of barley malting, milling and mashing. That's that's all we've looked at, and, and look how many variables there are so far. Yeah, and and as we were saying, we, we've only just stepped inside most distilleries. Right. So all all, the, all the, everything up to now has 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 been offside mm-hmm. for the majority. Yeah, quite like the. The big circle you go in thinking you're learning, you come back where you started and somehow better informed but no wiser, or is it wiser <laughs> or what? You know, it's mesmerized by the myriad of possibilities, really. Yeah, yeah. You just, you, you just know that you don't know it all, you know, you know yeah. a little bit more about how much you don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's going to be many more things that we don't know about. In the next episode, which yeah. is going to be a it's going to be a cracker. This is this is where I know some people get all hit up about the stills and the stills are the big yeah, sexy well, the big sexy bit of the of the. Fine, fine. So, know, so it's setting you up there. You're right to say yeah, but there's fermentation first, of course. Yes. Yeah. Oh, uh, and we and and yeast to talk about along the way. <laughs> we'll need to put some time aside for that one. Yeah. But um, that was great. So good to chat whiskey with you. Um, it's just yeah, it's always an education. Great. It's great. Love it. Um, shall we? Shall we say uh, cheerio to the various types of mash tons and their their various uh, lottering ways and make our way through. And can you say cheerio in a traditional style, a semi-loiter <laughs> style, a full-loiter <laughs> style? Which I think involves maybe one hand, the other one going up and down. That's a very visual joke, isn't it? 
<laughs> That's going to translate well. Wow. Good effort. As if, as if I wasn't making it difficult enough for my accent. Right, so um, we, we'll, we'll shimmy our way through the warts cooler and I'll catch up with you in the uh, washback. In the underback, yeah. Yeah. Uh, aye. Superb, Stuart. Good effort. Ah, oh, great. Yeah, absolutely. Love it. Okay. Uh, see you soon. Aye. Goodbye. <laughs>